Welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Meet him, greet him, treat him, and street him. Today's date is February 28, 2024, and I'm your skeptical host, Ken Milne. The title of today's podcast is Speed, Give Me What I Need to Diagnose Acute Aortic Dissections. And we are really excited this episode at the SGEM to introduce a brand new SGEM <laughs> on off the press faculty member taking over the position previously occupied by the top gun himself, Dr. Chris Bond, who always felt the need, the need for speed. Stepping into Chris's flight suit is Dr. Neil Gasgupta. Neil, why don't you tell the audience who you are, where you work, and how are you connected already to the SGEM? Thanks, Ken. I certainly have some big shiny shoes to fill, um, and I certainly don't look as good in a Navy dress white uniform as Chris does. Nobody looks as good as Chris in a Navy white. I will do my best to take over where he left off. Uh, I'm Neil Descupta, an emergency medicine physician and ED intensivist from Long Island, New York. I work clinically uh, there as well as being the vice chair of emergency medicine at uh, Nassau University Medical Center in East Meadow, New York. We are the safety net hospital for Nassau County. And Ken, as you delight in saying all the time, uh, I am here riding the coattails of my brilliant and accomplished wife, Suchismita Dutta, uh, another SGEM hop faculty member, and my in with your in crowd. I first got to be a guest skeptic a bit back with episode 350, and now I'm part of the team and I'm really excited. Uh, but enough about me. Let's get into today's paper that encompasses a lot of the things that I'm, uh, uh, I love about emergency medicine, some critical care and some ultrasound. And as usual, let's frame it with a case. Well, before you jump into the case, I just want to go on record because we are being recorded and maybe at least one person will hear this. We both married up, didn't we? One hundred percent. All right. Give us a case. So a 59-year-old man walks into your community emergency department complaining of chest pain and is described as a ripping sensation that radiates to his back. His vital signs are all normal and the ECG done at triage does not show an occlusive myocardial infarction. The chest x-ray is unremarkable and his troponin is not elevated. You suspect an acute aortic dissection. However, your CT scanner is offline for two hours of scheduled maintenance. He will need to be transferred to a tertiary care center, which is 35 minutes away by ground EMS, if it is a dissection. Your spidey senses are tingling, and you don't want to wait for the CT scanner to be back online to make this diagnosis. Arrangements are made for him to be transferred stat to the tertiary hospital while he's still stable. You wonder if a quick POCUS examination looking for three sonographic findings while waiting for the paramedics could help determine the likelihood of this being an aortic dissection. Well, I'm glad this episode came up now because we recently covered acute aortic syndrome just two episodes ago on SGEM number 430. AAS has been called the lethal triad, and it includes aortic dissections, but also intramural hematoma and penetrating aortic ulcer. It's rare, but a deadly condition that can present in atypical ways, meaning this can lead to delays in diagnosis, and those delays have been associated with increased mortality. This episode is going to focus on acute aortic dissection, which is classified into two major types according to the Stanford classification system, 
type A and type B. This system is based on the location of the tear and helps guide treatment strategies. So a Stanford type A dissection involves the ascending aorta, and it may extend into the descending aorta. It's more common and much more dangerous than a type B dissection, as it can lead to serious complications like rupture into the pericardial space, leading to cardiac tamponade, aortic valve insufficiency, or myocardial infarction. Symptoms may include more severe chest pain radiating to the back, a loss of consciousness, or symptoms of a stroke if the blood supply to the brain is affected. Type A acute aortic dissections generally require an emergent trip to the operating room as soon as they're identified to reduce the likelihood of a terrible outcome. Type B dissections occur in the descending aorta only after it has passed the arteries that supply blood to the arms and head. They are less common than type A and usually less immediately life-threatening, but still serious and potentially fatal if not treated properly. Symptoms can include sudden onset of pain in the back or abdomen, depending on the exact location and the extent of the dissection. The pain is often described as tearing or ripping. Now, speed is important in making the diagnosis of acute aortic dissection due to the associated increase in mortality with delays. We know from the previous episode that clinical decision tools are not quite ready for prime time. This is consistent with the American College of Emergency Physicians, or ASEP, which does not recommend the routine use of clinical decision tools in suspected cases of acute aortic dissection. All right, that's enough background material. Neil, why don't you give us the clinical question we're going to try to answer on today's episode. So what is the diagnostic accuracy of three sonographic findings for acute aortic dissection? And the reference to answer that question. We'll be looking at Gibbons et al., the sonographic protocol for the emergent evaluation of aortic dissections, the SPEED protocol, a multicenter prospective observational study which is hot off the press in academic emergency medicine from February 2024. Yeah, and it's it's good that this is a leap year and we have 29 days in February to get this in because we're recording it on the 28th. It's been a really busy month. And so we're squeezing this in right at the end. Uh, we'll, we'll be we'll be quicker for the March episode, but I'm really happy this is a leap year. So let's go through the PCOT, and that's the Population Intervention Comparison Outcome and Type of Study. So, Neil, who are the people they're looking at in this study? They looked at a convenience sample of adult patients with clinically suspected Stanford Type A or Type B aortic dissections before performing a POCUS, point-of-care ultrasound, or CTA, CT angiography, from January 2010 to December 2019. And they chose to exclude those patients unable to consent, makes sense, those with pre-existing or traumatic aortic dissections, and individuals who did not receive a point-of-care ultrasound evaluation prior to any advanced imaging. What was the intervention they were looking at? So POCUS was performed by PGY-1 to PGY-3 emergency medicine residents to identify three sonographic findings consistent with acute aortic dissection. Okay, let's itemize those three things. It included the presence 
of either a pericardial effusion, that's one, two, an intimal flap, or three, an aortic outflow tract diameter greater than 35 millimeters measured from the inner wall to the inner wall within 20 millimeters of the aortic annulus during end diastolic. That's for all the POCUS gurus, the ultrasounders. I'm just an average sounder. What did they compare it to? They compared it to CT angiography of chest, abdomen, pelvis, MRI, MRA, or cardiology performed TEE, which is transesophageal echocardiography. I I know I'm like I'm getting closer to sixty than I am to fifty now, but every time I see the the acronym TEE, it makes me giggle. It does. I'm still a twelve year old boy on the inside. All right, so let's talk about their outcomes. What was their primary outcome? They were looking for diagnostic accuracy of identifying a Stanford type A and B aortic dissection. And how about their secondary outcomes? Test characteristics of each of the three individual sonographic findings for diagnosing Stanford type A and type B aortic dissections. And the T in the PCOT, what was the type of study? This was a multi-center, prospective, observational cohort study of a convenient sample of adult patients. So this is the first SGEM hot off the press for 2024, and I'm pleased to introduce Dr. Ryan Gibbons. He is a proud graduate of the Lewis Katz School of Medicine at Temple University, where he climbed the ladder. He completed his emergency medicine residency there, served as the chief resident there, and then followed up with an advanced emergency medicine ultrasound fellowship at Temple as well. Now, currently, Dr. Gibbons is an associate professor of EM, the fellowship director for the ultrasound program, and the director of ultrasound in the undergraduate medical education program. Yeah, he sounds like one of these ultrasounders, Neil, not an average sounder. So uh, welcome to the SGM, Dr. Gibbons. Thank you, Ken and Neil. I'm excited to be here and uh, share some of this uh, POCUS enthusiasm and, and try to get you guys on board with it. Oh, I love your enthusiasm, but I also love your study name. I mean, are you a big fan of the Sandra Bullock 1994 movie Speed, or did you get the name from somewhere else? Uh, I'll, I'll have to say, I mean, anything early 90s with Keanu Reeves, I mean, you, you got me on board here. I mean, Speed, Point Break. Uh, and once I found point break again, I was like, I wonder if I could make that into some sort of acronym for ultrasound. So, but yeah, I mean, Keanu in the early nineties, I know I'm dating myself, but dating yourself, come on. I'm the guy stuck in the eighties a decade earlier, but I'm on board with your Keanu Reeves and Johnny Utah, man, Johnny Utah. Love (laughs) it. I don't know, Ken, you, you definitely characterize that movie as a Sandra Bullock movie and not as a Keanu Reeves movie. So I'm a little worried about you. I don't know about your love for Keanu here. I I have love for Keanu. I do have love for Keanu, but, uh, Hey, uh, this is not a 1990s movie <laughs> podcast review like uh, the rewatchables with uh, Bill Simmons. So uh, let's get to the author's conclusions. What did you find, Ryan? The speed protocol has an overall sensitivity of 93.2% for aortic dissections. Neil, like, isn't that the just the best emergency medicine conclusion? One sentence, <laughs> one it's sentence. Brilliant. I mean, Talk about speed. 
Boom. There it is. Speed protocol. Overall sensitivity, 93.2%. Boom. Done. I love it. That was so good. Drop the mic and walk out. Yeah. I mean, what what do you got to say, right? You know, very emergency medicine framed. <laughs> Why don't we go through the quality checklist for observational studies while Ryan relaxes, and uh, then we'll bring him back for the talk nerdy section. We'll really drill him with some hard questions and see if he can give us more of a one-sentence answer. Okay, Neil? Sounds good. All right. So uh, first question, uh, do you think the study addressed a clearly focused issue? Yes, definitely. And how about the methods? Was it appropriate to answer their question? That um, we'll have to talk about a little bit more as we go through. I think the um, the protocol was, um, uh, given the fact that it was a convenient sample, we'll have to dive a little bit deeper to figure that out for ourselves. Sure, sure. And do you think the cohort was recruited in an acceptable way? Well, I think this might have been the the biggest problem. The It was not universally applied to patients with suspected aortic dissection. Yeah, and it was over a 10-year period over multiple sites. So that's really hard to make sure you capture everybody. And uh, this, is, this just uh, is an example of the difficulties of this type of research with a rare condition. Uh, do you think the exposure was accurately measured to minimize bias? Yes, absolutely. And how about the outcome? The outcome was uh, as accurately as you can measure it, I think. And do you think the authors have identified all important confounding factors? Maybe not. Yeah, it's tough in a observational study like this to be able to capture all uh, important uh, confounding factors. How about the follow-up of subjects? Do you think it was complete enough? Yes. And how about the precision or how precise were the results? The confidence interval was very wide, the 95% confidence interval. So I, I wouldn't call it very precise. And this would be expected when you have so few cases right? You're going to have wide confidence intervals. And again, they were trying to capture this over 10 years. And I'm not going to spill the beans here, but they were getting single digits with regards to the aortic dissection. So it is a rare condition. So we would expect wide confidence intervals just because of the math involved. Um, Neil, do you believe the results? I do. How about, can you apply it to the local population? The Selection bias involved may not let us apply this to uh, universally throughout all of our uh, patient populations. Yeah, it depends on where you work and your patient populations, of course. Um, do the results fit with other available evidence? Not exactly. Um, I think the there's not a lot of data on this yet, but uh, it, it, the, the there were a couple of things that made it different than the existing literature on aortic dissection and ultrasound. Oh, I'm sure we're going to talk nerdy to Ryan about that one then. All right. And uh, where'd the money come from? D did they shower Ryan with a whole bunch of money, you know, and he became like this really well-off researcher that does clinical research? Well, given the fact that neither one of us got a payout on this one, I think uh, he's, not, he's not rolling in it quite yet. Uh, investigators received no funding and declared no conflicts of interest in the study. All right, let's run through the results. Over this 10-year period, they got just over 1,300 patients approached and agreed to be enrolled in this study. The mean age was 59 years with about a 50-50 split male-female. There were 21, so that's 1.5% Stanford Type A dissections identified, and 23, 1.8% Stanford Type B dissections diagnosed. So of the total, they got 
44 patients identified over 10 years. This is not a common condition. So that works out to 3.3% cases diagnosed. Now, of those 44, 41 of them, so that's where you get the 93%, had at least one finding present on point-of-care ultrasound. Neil, why don't you give us the key result? While the sensitivity of POCUS for aortic dissection was high, the 95% confidence interval around the point estimate was very wide due to the low number of cases. And so what we'll do is for the primary and secondary outcomes, the primary outcome was the diagnostic accuracy using those three things for a standard type A or B, and then looking at the individual, those three components, looking at the diagnostic accuracy. And what we'll do is not to get, you know, like lost in the numbers, we'll put a couple of tables from the paper in looking at the accuracy, sensitivity, specificity positive predictive value, negative predictive value, and the likelihood ratios. And we'll put those in the show notes for people to look at. But I really want to get Ryan back here. I want him to get to talk nerdy and give me more than one sentence. And so, Neil, this is your first time on a hot off the press episode. So the floor is yours to give nerdy point number one. So Ken alluded to the fact that this is a very rare diagnosis. We don't find this very frequently. And why this would be difficult to recruit patients. These were not consecutive patients, but a convenient sample of patients with suspected aortic dissection. Ryan, how did patients ultimately make it into the study? And what biases could this have introduced into the sample? Right. I mean, ultimately, it was it was based on the clinician's gestalt. Um, you know, you guys had mentioned earlier about just kind of the myriad of of signs and symptoms that aortic dissections present with. So it makes it really challenging to say, hey, every person with X, Y, or Z, enroll them. It, you know, it really is not a, a condition that presents that way. So it can be challenged to, challenging to come up with some sort of protocol to ensure that we can enroll everyone. And then I'll also um, rag on some of my colleagues a little bit here. Not everyone is as enthusiastic about point-of-care ultrasound as I am or, or some of my ultrasound colleagues, so they're less likely to really utilize this technology. And then the final point was the individuals enrolling and consenting uh, were part of the study, and, and they can't be there 24-7. We didn't get funding for this, so there's definitely a lot of limitations on, on preventing us from you know getting a continuous enrollment, and that's why it ended up being convenient. Uh, and then all the limitations associated with that. Yeah, that's really helpful. Research is hard. And we, you know, we never want to come across as, you know, we're doing critical appraisal. We're talking about the science and there's limitations to every study. And this takes place in a context. Uh, one of my EBM mentors, Dr. Andrew Worster, used to always say to me, if you want to make a condition rare, just set up a research protocol to study it because then nobody will come in with that condition. And if you already have a rare condition and then you say, okay, let's study it, it's going to make it even rarer. And then if you have no funding for research assistants to be able to capture the data and they can only be on site when the sun is warming the earth, uh, Monday through Friday, that makes it harder. And then, of course, you've got to get the buy-in from your colleagues to say, hey, can you put a probe on anybody that you suspect has an aortic dissection? Would you mind getting out the POCUS machine and doing that? And then, of course, patients have to consent, right? And not everybody's going to say, hey, yeah, sure, put some jelly on me and uh, check that out while I've got this ripping chest pain. So 
I understand why it was a convenient sample and how difficult um, research can be. Point number two is about the ultrasonographers. These scans were done by PGY-1 to 3 emergency medicine residents. And this is where things are sort of flipped on its head. You know, in the past, we would often say, well, you know, look, it was done by the uh, residents. These weren't attendings doing the procedure or whatever, uh, as if that was a derogatory comment. Um, a lot of the uh, residents are much better at ultrasound than I am uh, as an attending. And so they come in with the enthusiasm, but also a lot of experience. Um, uh, they've basically grown up with it. It's like the generations who now have grown up with digital media. They were born online, right? Where we had to go, okay, um, www dot backslash, you know, okay, boomer. Uh, but these these are residents, and I and I don't think that should be a negative that they may not have the experience uh, to do these ultrasounds. They received a four hour introductory course taught by uh, the emergency ultrasound faculty, and in addition to that, each resident completed a three week emergency ultrasound rotation during their internship. They did not receive any additional formal training before participating in the stu study, except for the standard bedside teaching throughout the residency. So, Ryan, do you think this study involving PGY-1 to 3s doing the scans can be extrapolated to, you know, an old average attending guy like me in a non-academic community or rural setting? Could I do this, Ryan? You, you, my wish and hope it is uh, is that you can. Uh, but I, I definitely understand that, you know, availability is one thing, you know, in the community is point of care available. Most of most places, community sites have ultrasound or CAT scan 24 seven. So you really don't need it. Is the training available? So I think, you know, this certainly limits, you know, the applicability, you know, outside of an academic center. But as you know, more and more residents graduate and go into the community, hopefully this is something that'll be introduced because I think the biggest value here is, you know, it can really expedite your diagnosis in, in, in a time critical situation. So hopefully one day, but definitely not ready for, for prime time yet. So what you're saying, um, and I'm just summarizing, you could speed up the diagnosis. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I did want to ask you that as a part of doing these studies, there's a whole bunch of other views that I think could be useful or people have found useful for aortic dissection, uh, especially the sternal notch view or the other cardiac views um, that weren't included in your study. Did the residents do those views and you didn't include them in the analysis or did you limit the residents to doing the measurements that were outlined in the study? We limited them to what, what we outlined Traditionally, what we teach are the four standard views, you know, pyrosternal long, short, apical four, and subxiphoid. And then my mentor, Dr. Thomas Constantino, developed this uh, protocol where they, you know, look at the outflow track. You know, we do teach supersternal, but but not in a structured manner. We're like, hey, you could look at that, but these are our four standard views. This is what we want you to get. So it, it was not included in our in our protocol and reviewing everything because we QA all our scans. I can't remember the last time someone did a supersternal view. And and ultimately, I don't think it would have changed our, our management and our, our diagnostic characteristics, you know, once we kind of hashed out all the the uh, logistics and, and statistics. And it makes it may more, way more translatable to other people who are doing ultrasonography because these aren't special views. So 
Ken may not have heard of some of these uh, techniques being a not ultrasonographer is what you're calling yourself. Correct. I, I, but I like to think that I am Kenneth. So let's talk a little bit about the lack of masking here. Physicians performing the scan were not masked. They also had access to laboratory results like the D-dimer and plain film imaging. How do you think that could have biased the results? I mean, certainly, you know, having an abnormal x-ray or elevated D-dimer is certainly going to sway you into potentially overcalling some sonographic signs. So I think, it, you know, having access to those certainly affects the sensitivity of, of our results. And we couldn't, you know, keep track of, of if they had to access that or not, because there's some of our campuses, you know, have when they're in the waiting room, they have pre-orders and things like that that you have access to. Other sites, not at all. So there are some faculty that had that, some that didn't. Um, and unfortunately, it was too difficult to account for that. But the fact that, you know, that those type of data points could be available certainly affects, you know, our test characteristics and, and how good they are, especially the sensitivity. So nerdy point number four is about the prevalence of aortic dissection. And we've talked about, you know, how this is a rare condition and it can be made rare by deciding to do a research project on it. But your actual prevalence was three and a half percent which was high compared to previously published data. And so this is where I sort of got the suggestion that there could be some selection bias going on. Do you think that's true? And do you think that there could be any other kind of bias going on because of the higher prevalence that you did uh, find? I, I couldn't agree more. I, I, you know, our patient population is is fairly unique. You know, most of our clinical sites are are inner city, lower socioeconomic status with limited insurance to no insurance, very poorly controlled hypertension, uh, substance use disorder is, is is unfortunately very prevalent. So our patient population, you know, is at risk for aortic dissections. And it is something our faculty, our residents are very aware of, like it is always on our differential. And we see it way too, even if it's so rare, we see it very frequently. So certainly this, you know, is a spectrum of patients that is not the same as, as the, the overall population. So this certainly limits, you know, the external validity of, of our results, especially outside of this fairly unique patient population. Yeah, compared to my patient population, and this may be recall bias, but I, I can't see one in 33 patients uh, with chest pain that I may suspect, oh, well, I guess it's chest pain. It, it could be aortic dissection. Actually rule in for that of all comers. So that suggested too that the external validity of my patient population may be different than yours in a rural community and not in a large urban inner city community. Those of us who trained on Long Island will probably tell you that uh, Long Island is an aortic dissection center of excellence, much like what sounds like where Ryan works. And we see it way more often than we, than we suspect. With these low prevalence diagnoses, you may be the outlier, you may be the mean, who knows? Yeah, it's interesting. Even within our, our, our diverse campuses that we have, you know, we go from our inner city academic one to our, you know, suburban community one, and the patient population is completely different. Um, so you get that sampling bias as well. So yeah, it, it really depends on on where you practice and, and who your patients are. And then that could lead us into nerdy point number five, where this prevalence is still low. The 3.5% 
is still a small number, even if it is larger than other published data. This small number of cases results in a wide 95% confidence interval around the point estimate for the diagnostic accuracy metrics. What impact do you think this may have had on your results? I mean, the biggest factor is that it, it really just overestimates our, our positive predictive value and, and makes the negative predictive value look amazing. And, and that's what happens when you have, uh, have these type of numbers, unfortunately. Well, those were the five nerdy questions we had for you, but we always like to end with some open-ended questions. So is there anything else that, you know, when you put together a study, not everything gets into it. Reviewer number two might cut something out. Uh, is there anything like little nugget of information that you think is important for the listeners to know about from this study or take a step back and talk about this area, this topic in general? The thing I want you know, people to take away and, you know, what we teach our residents, it's, you know, point of care is not perfect as, as, as much as it pains me to say that it's an adjunct, but I think in these type of, you know, conditions, especially these emergent conditions with high mortality and morbidity, you know, at the very least, even though it's an imperfect study and there's, you know, and protocol, it can expedite the diagnosis and expedite the treatment um, and I think that's the most important thing, you know, use it, you know, based off your capabilities and understand its limitations and your limitations, but it's definitely something that, that can certainly help your patient population when you come across a potential dissection. All right, Neil, it's time to comment on the author's conclusions and compare them to the SGEM's conclusion. Well, Ken, we agree with the author's conclusions. But we would have added that there was a wide confidence interval around the reported 93.2% sensitivity. Yeah, and that's just a friendly amendment. So it's, you know, a piece of information saying, look how sensitive this is. It's always nice to know that what's the confidence interval around that. So that's just a friendly amendment, Ryan. Um, Neil, how about a SGM bottom line? Aortic dissections are rare diagnoses, deadly diagnoses, and hard to diagnose even with POCUS. And can you resolve the case that you presented at the beginning of the podcast? So the vascular surgeon on the other side of the phone says to get on the road and don't wait for the CT scanner to be up and running. Speed is of the essence, and they will be standing by on arrival to assess the patient. The patient arrives alive, and you transfer care to the vascular team. When you get back to the community hospital, you find out that the CTA shows a Stanford type B aortic dissection and the vascular team is discussing next steps with the patient and their family. And how are you going to take this study and apply it clinically? You know, this is an interesting study, and I love me some POCUS, but this would need to be replicated in other clinical settings to see if it could be a fast and accurate way to diagnose aortic dissection. And so the conversation that you have with the patient as they're wheeling out on the gurney, what are you going to say to them? It looks like the large blood vessel coming off your heart has a tear. This is a serious and potentially deadly condition. We need to get you to the city hospital as soon as possible. The ambulance is on the way, and the vascular surgeons are waiting for you to arrive. All right, it's time to announce the Keener Contest winner, and I'm happy to say there was a winner last week, and that was David Bowden. He knew St. John's wort has some evidence for efficacy in the treatment of mild to moderate depression. Neil, what's the question this week? 
What state college jacket is Sandra Bullock wearing in Speed? Oh, and Ryan, I know that you're, you know, a huge Speed fan and a Keanu Reeves fan, but do you know the answer? Don't say it if you know it, but do you know the answer to this question? I don't know. I, I should have watched the movie in preparation. I did review the movie in preparation just for this podcast. That's how it, it's method podcasting. I immerse myself in the topic. If you think you know the answer, watch the movie if you don't. But if you've got the answer, then send an email to the sgem at gmail.com with Keener in the subject line. The first correct answer will receive a cool skeptical prize. Now it's your turn, SGMers. What do you think of this episode on POCUS for diagnosing aortic dissection? Tweet your comments using hashtag SGEMHOP, the SGEM hop. What questions do you have for Ryan and his team? Ask them on the SGEM blog. The best social media feedback will be published in Academic Emergency Medicine. Well, thanks, Neil, for coming on and doing your first SGEM hot off the press. Really enjoy doing it. Next time, I expect you to be dressed in the flight suit, though. Um, I don't know. Maybe we'll have to pivot and, and pick another theme. I don't, I don't want to, t- I don't want to step on Chris's, uh, style. Exactly. Yeah. Well, when, when he's got it down so perfectly, um, we are, you know, each year we have this big summer party and we, and we started with Top Gun Maverick, right? We had the Top Gun party. Then we had the Mission Impossible party last year. Should you choose to accept it? Yeah. This next year, we're going to have the Barbie and Ken party. So if you want to dress up as as Ken with the uh, little visor and the uh, sweatshirt, that would be fun. Getting away from the Tom Cruise movies. I'm uh, I'm surprised. Yeah. Well, Barb's organizing this year. <laughs> All right. Um, and uh, thank you, Ryan, for coming on and being our guest skeptic and listening to us banter about things that don't involve point of care ultrasound. I very much enjoyed it. So thank you both for having me. And we do ask the guests to read the SGEM tagline. Remember to be skeptical of anything you learn, even if you heard it on the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Talk to everyone next week. I said speed, speed.